0: Support for this podcast comes from TradePoint Atlantic, the former home of Bethlehem Steel and now one of the largest, most strategically significant intermodal global logistics hubs in the country. Learn more about TradePoint Atlantic and its commitment to preserving the story of Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point at TradePointAtlantic.com. The story of Sparrows Point is massive, massive. However you look at it, 125 years, 3,000 plus acres, tens of thousands of jobs, millions of tons of steel, and billions of dollars. It's a hugely important piece of history, but put all that aside for a minute, because I want you to know the story of Sparrows Point also happens to be just a really great story, a story with drama and glory and hubris, surprise, twists and turns, and most importantly, It's got a fantastic cast of characters. This is what drew me to the story of Sparrows Point. My name is Aaron Henkin. I'm not a historian, and I've got to give credit to the Baltimore Museum of Industry for trusting me with this project, because there are a whole lot of people out there who know a whole lot more about Sparrows Point than me. But what I do have going for me is I'm naturally curious, I'm totally comfortable with my own ignorance, and I love a good story. And those people who do know a whole lot more than me about Sparrows Point, well, I spent the past several months interviewing them, learning from them, and just enjoying their stories. I should say, on a side note, these interviews all happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the way we did it was I had two microphones and some long cables, And I traveled around making house calls. I sat on porches and stoops and backyard lawn chairs with folks when we did these recordings. So if you listen carefully, you'll probably hear some cicadas and birds and the occasional dog barking in the background. But everyone was just really generous with their time and their stories. And I'm looking forward to sharing these voices with you. This six-part series is going to take us all the way back to the late 1880s when Sparrows Point was just a remote stretch of marshland. We're going to hear how Sparrows Point turned into the biggest steel mill in the world. We'll learn about the rise of labor unions, fights for civil rights, racial and gender equality. We'll witness the collapse of this industrial behemoth and try to figure out what lessons we might be able to take away from it today. Like I said, massive story, but we're going to start today by just trying to get a feel for what it was like to walk into Sparrow's Point and do a day's work.
1: My name is Andrew Morton. I started at Bethlehem Steel June 25th, 1970 in Oscar Hall's Labor Gang, 520 Department, Steel Side, 2610.
0: That labor gang Andrew Morton is talking about, it was the central point where new entry-level employees went when they started at the mill. They'd get doled out to different departments from there. Mr. Morton got sent to the blast furnace. He said it was like a proving ground because it was so hot.
1: be honest with you, when I first went there, my first three weeks, they put me on the blast furnace the second week I was there, and I almost quit. I wrapped my clothes up and and my hot, my hot shoes and everything, and I was going to quit. I said, this is not for me, because I had only planned on on working down at the point for a a summer. Well, it was the two old guys, Horace Croman and Pettit. Well, Horace Croman came down the steps, and he had his pipe in his mouth, and he asked me, what's wrong, uh, young man? I said, sir, I can't do this kind of work. And he looked at me. He said, how do you know you can't do this kind of work? You didn't even try. I said, well, I'm just not made for this. He said, I'm going to tell you what. I'm not going to tell you not to quit, but I'm going to tell you this. If you quit now, you'll be a quitter the rest of your life. And I said, well, I'm not going to let this old man talk to me like that. So he turned around and walked back up the steps. So I grabbed my stuff and I said, okay, i walk with him. Well, they took me back in the back and it was a bunch of guys, guys by the name of Broadway, Cat Eye Johnson's, uh, uh, Plato. And these guys were huge. And first thing they said to me, look at this little skinny kid. And then he said, well, for one, because I had a bag of Gino Marchetti food. They took my food and threw it in the trash can. I was a little upset there, but I, I, you know, nothing I could do with all them guys. And then they looked at my shoes. and they said, you don't even have the right shoes to work on the furnace. So they took my shoes off, and a guy named Wade, uh, he took my shoes, and he went back in the back, and he cut out tires in the shape of soles for the shoes and tacked them on the bottom of my shoes. So that made my shoes extremely heavy, but... Um, I had an inch and a half of rubber between my soles and the ground. Then the guy said, okay, we got to feed this young boy. So they sit down at the table and they put out a plate and they said, come here. Come on, boy, young boy. Come on over here. And they put chicken, greens, potato. I mean, potato salad. They just filled it up. They said, eat. So I ate the food and it was good. It was, I'm not going to lie about it. Then they said, Put your shoes on, and then we're going to teach you how to be a man. So I put my shoes on, and I didn't even know how to hold a shovel. I went out, and they popped me upside my head every time I did something wrong. But one thing that I came to appreciate, those guys, those guys were hardworking, strong men, and they had a lot of pride. And they told me, they said, if you listen to us, you're going to survive.
0: Mr. Morton ended up working at Sparrows Point for 42 years. A couple of months in, those old guys he was working with, they gave him a nickname. He says everyone had a nickname down there, and he earned his, Wild Man.
1: I prided myself on being able to work as hard as them, and eventually I could outwork them. And they showed me the ins and outs. Because if you didn't listen to those, those older guys, you died. And quite a few of my friends, I lost five or six friends uh, down there, uh, they got killed and it was a hazardous environment.
0: Mr. Morton's career actually takes a crazy twist about halfway through his time at the mill, and we're gonna get back to him later this episode, but let me give you a chance now to walk a mile in the boots of some other steelworkers. I wanna introduce you next to Donald Forrest. He grew up in the 1950s in a neighborhood called Water's Edge, just outside of Dundalk, near Sparrows Point.
2: Bethlehem Steel was always in the distance, And the thing that always stood out to me as a kid is when they would dump these slag ladles over on Blast Furnace Road, the sky would light up orange like all of a sudden it was daytime. And it it would go from a totally black sky to a totally orange sky and just, just being amazed and not knowing what that was and always wondering if I'd ever get a chance to see it.
0: Mr. Forrest went to school in Dundalk, but he didn't get a job at Sparrows Point right away. He worked for a few years as a bricklayer, then he worked at McDonald's for a while. But the steel mill was always there on the horizon. It was 1969, and Mr. Forrest said he was making $1.40 an hour at McDonald's. Bethlehem Steel was paying $2.64 an hour. He knew if he went to work in the mill, he'd be starting in that labor gang. But he did the math, and he took the job.
2: My first day there, we all the new guys, they gave us all new brown hats, you know, so we looked like, oh, here comes the newbies. And they sent us over to get to get boots, so I got a pair of, of boots. We didn't have, we had steel toes then, but the shoes, and I always remember that we had to buy our own gloves and shoes. And the shoes were $6.90 a pair, and so we had to buy gloves too. I don't remember what they were, so we went back over there. And that took a couple hours, so they walked us over there. And as we walked through the plant, everything was vast. Looking through the open hearts and the pattern shop and never seen anything like that. So I was thinking this morning, even my whole tenure there, for me, the good and the bad days and overall, still, it was like an adventure being there because it was a, a different world that nothing else was like it. So we got back that day. Uh, from getting our shoes and as we walked back they had this these trestles with these cars going back and forth and so they would drop these little iron pellets so our job was okay Half you go here and we had to sweep the streets from maybe a couple hundred feet that these pellets and get them off the road so people didn't trip but they were always there cars would ride by we'd have to stand to the side but he said, "Sweep from here to there, which was a couple hundred feet away, like I said, and just kind of, kind of clean them out of the way, because it was a safety hazard." And we were, we were slipping and falling while we were, we were uh, sweeping them.
0: One of Mr. Forrest's other jobs on the labor gang was to go around to the mill's ten different blast furnaces and collect worn-out tools to be taken to the blacksmith to be fixed. When he was on his rounds collecting tools. He'd see this formidable sight of this molten iron in these giant furnaces. But he caught wind of the kind of money these blast furnace guys were making. So he went to the general foreman's office and he made an offer.
2: Mr. Hull, I'd like to go up on the furnace so I could make more money. Well, then that was $150 a week then. And I had no idea what I was getting myself in for. I mean, going up there and seeing it and working on it, it was two different worlds. And when I went up there, the smoke the sulfur, the noise, the steam, the heat. That was in, that was in February, so it was still hot up there in February. So my job was to, as the slag came out on the outside of the furnace in these spouts, and they were, they would go into these bowls. My job was, as that filled up, to pull a chain about 100 feet long and pull it up and open that up and let it come down to the down a trough to the next ladle and let it run in there and then go over there put I had a we had asbestos coats then that were silver and we had a screen shield and you'd put it up to your face because the the heat would just burn you you had safety and you would knock that sand dam and let it flow down to the next ladle so you did that and that ran about an hour and after that what you would do is then you'd They'd stop the tap. You'd put hot water on it and let it steam, and, and the coal crew would go back in the back to the shanty, and they would they would eat. So I was back there with all the men, uh, pretty much all black men, and they, they had their food, and they were eating, and I was eating. You know, little kids sitting in the corner, 18 years old, up there with these men. And then they started going out to work, and I went over mine, and I was so fatigued. I had these things that were three or four 500 pounds long i had to break them with a chipping bar and break them and finally they come over and say come on we'll give you a hand and they all went over there graciously and helped us because we had to get the furnace ready for the next tap that which was in four hours from the from every four hours they were tapping and they were gracious and they never said a thing we all pitched in and and got it done and you know that was it
0: You heard Mr. Forrest mention there that most of his co-workers were black. At the time, the crews on the blast furnaces and coke ovens were 90% black. So as a young white guy, Mr. Forrest was a distinct minority there. We're going to get into the larger picture of racial segregation at the mill in an upcoming episode. But what Mr. Forrest remembers is the camaraderie and the generosity of his colleagues.
2: You know, the guys would take me under their wing and say, I say, I want to learn how to run that car. Come on, I'll show you how to do it. And they, you know, I think they got a kick out of it more than anything else because they were older men who would probably been like maybe Korean veterans or World War II veterans, and they were so gracious. I, to this day, I still think about Cisco Moses and, you know, how he took me under his wing. He was very calm and methodical about every day, and I, And those men, for me, they filled a the gap because when my dad left, I didn't have a father. And so these men were teaching me about life skills, about food, about a lot of things. And I was just, I, I just felt totally at home there. I never felt out of place. I enjoyed working with those men in some of the horrific jobs, the dirt, the filth, the cold. And, but we, we were a team. It's the first time I'd ever been a team.
0: So as you can hear from the steelworkers we've met so far, when you were an hourly employee at Sparrows Point on the blast furnaces and the Coke ovens, it was a serious grind. A lot of the guys will tell you they felt like they were going to war when they walked in there. But these guys in the trenches, they had a managerial layer of bosses over them. White hats, they were called, the supervisors. And for as tough as the work was on the floor at the mill, these white hats, it sounds like they had a pretty sweet
3: gig. I picked Bethlehem Steel, and one of the reasons was is because I played golf. And they had the golf course. <laughs>
0: This is Charlie Conklin. He graduated from Brown University with a mechanical engineering degree and he took an offer from Bethlehem Steel in 1959. Coincidentally, that year, 1959, was the year of the longest steelworker strike in U.S. history, 116 days.
3: So I went to a plant that was asleep. I mean, there nothing was running and, and uh, uh, we spent um, the whole 116 days sort of Going around the plant, seeing the the uh, coke ovens and through the blast furnace and up into the primary mills and then the finishing mills. In the good old days, they had a pipe mill and a rod mill, and um, it was quite an experience to uh, uh, learn it. Mr. Conklin had moved into the town of Dundalk. Dundalk, they called it at the time, and Dundalk was right next to Sparrows Point.
0: When the mill fired up again after the strike, he remembers the women in his neighborhood were annoyed.
3: The women didn't like it because once the steel plant started up, uh, all the red dust came, and they couldn't hang their laundry outside. <laughs> and then uh, it was then that I had to you, you had to wipe your windshield off when you got up in the morning. But in any event, um, it was um, um, a good experience because um, it was an opportunity. The first. Uh, six months or a year was an opportunity for me to understand, uh, and I picked the plate mill.
0: The plate mill, by the way, built parts for bridges and railroad cars. Conklin says they even built parts of the rocket ship for the first U.S. space launch. And as the years rolled on, he enjoyed regular promotions through the managerial ranks to assistant general manager and then assistant superintendent of the plate mill. And during that time, he says his sole concern was how many tons per hour they put out
3: that meant that you know we turned the gas all the way up and we didn't care about all the smoke that we put out or anything i mean it was just production and and it was made you know every quarter we would m- sort of measure what good job that we we've done and
0: that party rolled on unchecked until the 1970s when the epa's clean air and clean water acts grew some teeth and started to clamp down on the industry Mr. Conklin remembers all of a sudden it seemed like instead of putting as much fuel as you wanted into the furnaces to heat the slabs up, you had to rein in the amount of smoke that was billowing
3: out of the plant. And I'll never forget, I I was uh, uh, coming back, this was a little bit after uh, 1970, but I was riding back, I was with the general manager, and I think we went out to Burns Harbor or wherever, and, and we were coming back and we were going over the key bridge and and Russ looked out there and he said the, the number four open hearth is really putting a lot of smoke out. He took his telephone and he called the superintendent. And he told him, <laughs> you know, you 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 shouldn't be putting this much smoke out. And so that in 1970, it, it changed a little bit as to how much we were going to do.
0: Even with the regulations, though, life was good for the White Hats at Sparrows Point. And as one of those White Hats... Mr. Conklin, reap the rewards.
3: My boss, a uh, superintendent, used to come in, and and once a year, and he would say, Charlie, um, uh, it's about time you got a little raise. You've done a good job, and it wasn't something that I had to write down or whatever, whatever, whatever. And he'd reach in his pocket, because it was like on a Sunday, and he'd have a long coat. He'd reach into his pocket, and he'd give me a little note that said, what my salary was going to be. Can you imagine that? Those were the days that, you know, it, it, it was a little bit different.
0: right, we're going to leave Charlie Conklin's story here in 1970 and swivel our focus to another facet of Bethlehem Steel's operations. That same year, 1970, was the year Lonnie Vick Jr. started with the company's Marine Division. Now, the Sparrows Point shipyard had been part of the plant since the beginning. They built tugboats and dredges and cargo ships, but as World War II approached, They got really, really busy building what were called Liberty ships. These were big, sturdy cargo ships designed to supply the U.S. and Allied forces overseas. Anyway, back to 1970, a couple of decades after that period of peak new construction, Lonnie Vick got a job at the shipyard as a welder. And at that point, they were mainly doing large ship repairs.
4: With new construction, uh, you start out with a product of a piece of steel and you just keep adding on to it. As you go along, and you try and finish each part as you progress along from the from, from the keel plate, that's the first plate that they lay down to start the construction of a ship, and you work your way up, backwards and forward. But with uh, repair, you may start at any place. Uh, you may start down in the builds, that's where all the sludge and and oil and stuff from the engine and all that stuff just pours down into... So you have to clean it out. You have to try and get down in there. Or you may be required to go inside of a huge engine and, 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 and do work.
0: And when you were inside the guts of an old ship doing repairs, Mr. Vick says one of the many hazards you had to deal with was asbestos. He says it was everywhere, wrapping the pipes, covering the engines. Even some of the workers' safety equipment was made of asbestos to protect them from the extreme heat.
4: Not only was dangerous because of that product, but the environment itself, because you was always around a lot of heavy materials, steel plates. Uh, you was around a lot of fire, torches, welding, up on staging and stuff of, of that nature, which in of itself lends itself to being very, very dangerous.
0: Mr. Vick says you knew that one false step could be your last. And everyone working around you, they knew it too.
4: You always have to look out for yourself and you always have to look out for your fellow brother or sister that happened to be working along with you. It, it was almost paramount that you do those type things. Climbing ladders that see, appear that they went just straight up for, uh, you know, 50, 75 feet, you know, and with no area where you can step off and rest and, and take your break. You know, we, we encountered some of that kind of stuff, too. So it was uh, quite a uh, uh, life Changing, life giving experience working in the shipyard.
0: I'm going to introduce you next to a guy who grew up basically in the shadow of the giant steel mill at Sparrows Point. He actually lives in a neighborhood near there now on Lynch Point that's on the outskirts of Edgemere and Sparrows Point. I met him there and interviewed him out on a dock behind his
5: house. His name is Keith. Taylor. So being surrounded by the largest steel mill in the world actually at one time and um, knowing all your uncles and, and, uh, and cousins and father-in-law and all was working there you just knew that probably one day you would be working there and so um, I went to the old uh, high school at Sparrows Point inside of Sparrows Point by, by the headquarters building in Bethlehem Steel and uh, I went to sixth grade there, and uh, they had uh, they had an accident there one time. They they had a, a blast from a gas a gas blast came out and it blew out all the windows in the high school. It is, it's pretty incredible. Um, no one died, but um, it was pretty uh, it was pretty wild to be in the middle of uh, uh, you know a steel mill and uh, going to school. Mr. Taylor was a football player when
0: he was in school, and he said every year there was a big local rivalry game called the
5: Steel Bowl. And it was Dundalk against Sparrow's Point. And we played over the Penwood Fields, uh, same field that um, Thomas Sparrow had bought from uh, Lord Baltimore, or given. He, I think it may have been a gift. So we we played in the Steel Bowl, and it was Dundalk against Sparrow's Point. And, uh, and then the next day, my father-in-law would tell me how many bets were You know, they were better on the games uh, Dundalk would win or Sparrow's Point would win. And it was, you know, and it was bragging rights inside the mill there. Uh, You know, Dundalk against Sparrow's Point.
0: Mr. Taylor graduated from high school in 1975. College was not an option for him financially, so he joined the Army, learned radar repair, and served 13 months in Korea. When he came home, he settled back in and worked for years at various defense contractors in the region. But his home was still right next to Sparrows Point. And while he was stuck in traffic on his commute to Hunt Valley, he got to daydreaming about how nice it would be if he could just ride his bike to work. So he put in an application with Bethlehem Steel, and they hired him as a control technician. He'd always lived near the mill, but he never really understood the sheer power of the place until he walked inside
5: on his first day on the job. My first day at Bethlehem Steel, when I walked in, I thought it was a movie set. It was incredible. Just the the heat and the dust and um, and just uh, you know it was like it was like fighting a fire. Like like my boys, a firefighter. It's like fighting a fire every day. You know you're in the heat. And you're watching steel being made. And uh, you know you hear a lot of those guys down there that been there 40 or 50 years. We're making steel. It's got to be like this. <laughs> It actually wasn't until 1990
0: when Mr. Taylor switched careers and started working at Sparrows Point. And at that time, old equipment in the hot strip mill was finally being replaced. It hadn't changed since the 1950s. But new machinery was being put in, and now this immense process with red hot multi-ton slabs of steel was gonna be run partly by computers. You'll hear Mr. Taylor call it the 68 hot strip. That's not the year.
5: That's how many inches wide this giant machinery rolled the steel. I became a turn engineer, an electrical turn engineer, and ran the 68 hot strip electrically on turn. So what that means by being on turn was day shift, 3 to 11 shift, and midnight shift, all in a 30-day period. And then you'd have some time off and then go right back into daylight, 3 to 11, midnight. And so... um, uh, I ran it electrically, which was really, really cool. Because I, so I would troubleshoot the whole mill. I'd start, you know, troubleshoot from the furnace all the way down. So if, if they went down, if the mill went down, you heard the whistle blow. I was I was on the scene, whether it be mechanical or electrical. So, so I learned a lot there. <laughs> In the year 2000,
0: Mr. Taylor switched careers again. He quit the mill and became a teacher. He's since become an amateur historian of his old stomping grounds. He started a nonprofit called the Sparrows Point North Point Historical Society to keep alive the memory of his hometown when it was in its industrial heyday. He says, from skyscrapers to World War II ships to the Golden Gate Bridge, there's just no overstating the impact that Bethlehem Steel had on history. And the people who
5: worked there, they knew it. They just knew that they were doing something wonderful. And, and, the, and to change the skyline of America, that's what Bethlehem Steel did. Very proud. The people were, the, the steel workers and the people of, of uh, this peninsula are very proud people. They, they know they've done some things to to save the world. <laughs>
0: All right, we're going to circle around again to the very first steelworker we met at the beginning of this episode, Andrew Morton. He's the guy who earned the nickname Wild Man in the Labor Gang. There's actually a really interesting story I want to share with you about the later parts of Mr. Morton's career, because he ended up working in that 68 hot strip mill that we just heard Keith Taylor talking about. One thing about Mr. Morton is... He'll tell you he was a sponge on the job, whatever department he was working in. He did 17 years on the blast furnace and learned every job in the place. Then he moved to the Coke ovens and did the same thing, learned every job in there.
1: A lot of the older guys were starting to retire and die out. So I started taking the senior positions. And the younger guys, but the younger guys did not have the same commitment to learning as we did, we respected those old men. The young guys, you had to more or less beat them down before you can actually teach them something. But eventually I did. And um, also they started respecting the fact that I had a motto, I'll never ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. And I also said, we are as hard as the steel we make. And I kept that attitude.
0: In the meantime, Mr. Morton enrolled in a class through the Institute of Career Development. That's a collectively bargained program that was administered by the union and company appointees. And through that program, he took a computer programming class at a community college in Essex.
1: So I felt I'm walking around with uh, C books and C, and the guys were making fun of me because they were still talking about going up Mickey's, drinking and partying. And looking at playboard books.
0: Mr. Morton eventually transferred departments again, this time to the 68 Hot Strip Mill. And when he got in there, he was ready to do what he always did, learn every job in the place. But these were newer technical jobs in a newer mill. And as an operational worker, Mr. Morton may have wanted to learn, but he was hard pressed to find anyone to teach him, at least at first.
1: Operational people were frowned on, operational people, the electrical people didn't talk to the operational people, and, uh, engineers didn't talk to the operational people. Everybody was a separate entity. Mechanical didn't work together. So I said, something is wrong with this picture. And as I started learning the jobs, um, I had a, an advantage with people because I had a, a real keen memory. So I could get on the job. In fact, when I learned the reverse and rough, and that's one uh, part of the mill that, uh, Defines how to, how a slab goes through it and reduces. I learned that job in less than a week. And I asked them could they put me on the job? They thought I was crazy. But they put me on the job on eleven or seven. I did the job for eight full hours and I did not make a mistake and I also did a calibration on the mill.
0: It was around this time Mr Morton started thinking If I can learn a job in a week or two, it doesn't make any sense for guys to have to spend six to eight months training on a job. Something is wrong with the training practices. So he looked at the training manual and it was a training manual written and designed by engineers. But the manual was supposed to be for the operational people because they were the ones doing the work. Mr. Morton said to himself, I think I can solve this problem.
1: I started learning the engineering part of the mill the mechanical part of the mill, and the electrical part of the mill. I started sketching the mill. So I would stay after work, and I would sketch the mill, and the guys, people thought I was crazy. They said, he's crazy. But what I would do is, I would come home, and I would use, I had a, at that time, I had an Omega uh, 500 computer. Well, Omega 500 computer is one of the first graphics Computers on the market.
0: Once he started tinkering around with his software Digitally rendering and animating these machines in the mill He realized I may not be on the payroll as an engineer, but you know what I could actually design a software training package
1: So that's what I did and I talked with some of the engineers and they were fascinated and they wouldn't listen to me at first but one day they were in my pulpit and they were talking about uh, operations of the mill and they were talking about computers So when they started talking about integers and variables and boolean expressions, I started explaining to them, I said, well, these boolean expressions you need to change. These verb variables you need to change. You need to have another storage unit. They started understanding that I knew what they were talking about.
0: These engineers, they started to trade knowledge with Mr. Morton. And some of them actually helped him design an interactive computer training program. And they told him, Look, you've got something here that's really a game changer. Go over to management and ask for a meeting because they're actually already looking at a couple of outside contractors to create training software.
1: Well, I asked for a presentation because I was competing against two companies, Illustrations and LearnScape. The day that I gave my presentation, I gave a presentation after, I was the last last one to give a presentation. Illustrations and LearnScape said that they had to bring a team in the mill to be six months so they could design. They had to learn the mill first. I gave a presentation on a finished product. I had already started writing the manuals.
0: Mr. Morton laid everything out for them. He said, look, I have a product here that can give our workers better training and it's ready to go. Then he said,
1: Don't deny me because of the color of my skin. And they thought about what I said. And by the time I got home, they called me and said, we, we want your software.
0: Now keep in mind, Mr. Morton was an hourly union worker at the time, but the management paid him for this special project as an outside consultant.
1: So I became the first African American in the history of Bethlehem Steel to be an hourly paid union person and to be paid the same time as an outside contractor designing software.
0: Mr. Morton designed his software to work kind of like a flight simulator does for pilots. But his was an interactive mill simulator for operators with accurate animated interfaces so you could fail or succeed depending on which buttons you pressed.
1: So if you made an error on a computer, you could make it 20, 20, 30 times until you figure out what you was doing wrong. You would not be shutting the mill down costing $5,000 a minute because that's what it costs when you shut that mill down. That's called Operator Err.
0: Mr. Morton worked at Sparrow's Point all the way up to the bitter end. He'll tell you he shed a tear on the day he and his fellow steelworkers were let go in 2012. But his love for the place has never faded. In fact, he's as obsessed with the mill today as he ever was. In his basement, he's got a custom-built computer setup with multiple monitors. And what he's working on these days isn't training software. It's more like a history project. He's created a complete free-roaming virtual reality tour of Sparrow's Point, filled with 7,000 pieces of machinery.
1: Because what I realized was that a lot of people didn't know anything about the mill, what the mill actually looked like, uh, what it entailed. Uh, They didn't know exactly what we did there.
0: It's, it's It's like a video game. It looks like a video game. I mean, you can free and you have a character there, a guy who can walk around and he can you can get close to stuff. You can get far away from stuff. You can see it at every
1: angle. Yes. What 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 I'm going to do eventually is I'm going to have this man. He's going to be actual actual human. I'm going to put a it's avatar now, but I'm going to actually create a human being. And I'm going to actually allow it to teleport to different parts of the mill.
0: Because the place is so big right yes. now, he's got to walk from one,
1: one Right place now to the he runs from one place to the other. Yeah. Well, you'll be able to, like, say, for instance, you want to go to the coke oven. So what you'll be able to do is reach a certain spot, and then all you would have to do is teleport right to that spot, and it'll take you right to that mill. Now, look at this here, and you can actually see the flames on the coke oven.
0: When I interviewed Mr. Morton, he showed me an old sketchbook with hundreds of drawings. Back in the day, he'd sit in the mill with his sketchbook and a pencil after working his full shifts, and he'd hand draw every single piece of machinery, all the way down to each bolt and pipe and valve and button. These drawings ended up being his source material for the software he eventually created, and more recently for the VR model of the mill. And he'll tell you these drawings all along really were just a labor of love.
1: I developed a love for the mill. Sometimes I would go home thinking about the mill. If I made a mistake, I would go home and think about, what mistake did I make, how how, how can I rectify that? It became to a point where the mill became an obsession with me. I, I the Guys didn't realize that uh, I, I fell in love with the mill. My girlfriend, she would get on me all the time. You love that damn Millmore and you love me. But in actuality, it, it was the truth. I enjoyed being there.
0: That's just about going to wrap it up for this first episode of Sparrow's Point, An American Steel Story. But here at the end of this episode and at the end of future episodes, I want to take just a few minutes to reflect on what we've heard and what we've learned with someone who's quite dedicated to preserving and sharing the history of Sparrow's Point. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. And Anita, as you've listened along with us this episode to the stories of these steelworkers... What strikes you? What surprises you? What's your takeaway?
6: I have a lot of takeaways. I think that one of the main things that I got from this was a really vivid depiction of the danger of working in the mill. And I don't think that the danger of a job in the steel mill really will surprise a lot of our visitors. But one of the things that I found really revealing and important was the mutual dependency of keeping one another safe. You know, Andrew Morton talks about that. And... I think what a number of the interviewees said was that they realized that their lives really depended on other people, and I thought that was a really interesting observation.
0: Yeah, there's a camaraderie, I think, when you work in a place like that that surpasses the uh, collegiality that you have with like a a standard uh, fellow office worker.
6: (laughs) Right, it's almost like um, like a foxhole mentality, like you're in a really potentially horrific, dangerous circumstance, and you are dependent on your co-workers to protect you and you to protect them. That really came across to me.
0: I should say this podcast is done in partnership with the Baltimore Museum of Industry uh, as part of your year-long Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. Let me have you, Anita, say a few words about, about what that project is, what's available at the museum and or online for folks that want to learn more about this chapter of history
6: well I appreciate the question because that's something I love talking about The Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project is a multi-year project here at the museum that seeks to document and preserve the story of Bethlehem Steel. We are collecting original materials for our archives and our collections. We'll make those available to the public, to researchers. A a really important part of the project is community engagement and outreach through a series of public programs, and, and just in general getting out into the community and getting to know the former steelworkers, and we are creating a long-term exhibition about the history of Sparrows Point so that that story will be permanently memorialized at the museum.
0: Anita Kassoff is the executive director at the Baltimore Museum of Industry. Look forward to talking with you more at the ends of uh, upcoming episodes in this series. Thanks for sharing your insights.
6: Thank you. Talk to you soon.
0: Coming up next time on the podcast, how did a swampy peninsula on the Patapska River get picked as the site for a revolutionary state-of-the-art steel mill? And what was there first? There was just one house on it, a house of an old ship captain, and Captain Fitzel liked his isolated spot because it reminded him of being out at sea, and they began building around 1888. Next episode, we'll rewind to the origins of Sparrows Point and trace the growth of what was to become the biggest steel mill in the world. Sparrows Point, an American Steel Story, is a co-production of WYPR and the Baltimore Museum of Industry as part of the BMI's Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. You can learn more about the museum and the Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project at thebmi.org. Special thanks to BMI staff members Ani Gellis, Beth Maloney, Anita Kassoff, and Joseph Abel. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for providing music for the series. This podcast is made possible with generous support from Tradepoint Atlantic and Maryland Humanities. For Sparrows Point, An American Steel Story, I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening.